What's up, guys? It's Little D from FMF. When I'm not mixing gas and hauling ass, I'm listening to Big MX Radio. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Andy Frisella here. You're listening to Big MX Radio. But when you're done with this episode, come check out the MFCEO project, mfceo.com. I got all your motivation. I've got everything you need to know about running your brand. I've got everything you need to know about getting shit done, and we can do it together. started. Big MX Radio, brought to you by Fly Racing USA, is on the air. Fueled by passion, focused on motocross. W Wheels USA, Moto Ice Wrap, and Maxima USA make it possible to bring you the news, the interviews, and the point of views inside the sport of motocross. The gate's about to drop. On Big MX Radio. Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by FMF and the Fast House. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, with us on the line. He is a repeat offender. We've had him on before. Uh, he is an integral part of Seat Concepts, goes by the name of Scott Dennison. Scott, how's it going? Oh, really good. How are you? Hey, not doing too bad, my friend. Uh, I might not be in Southern California uh, running errands for uh, for the company I work for, but uh, I'm able to talk about dirt bikes. That puts a smile on my face, and of course, every time that I get to shoot the shit with you, that's always a plus as well. Yeah. Well, you're not missing anything in SoCal today. It is well over 100 degrees for like the 60th straight day, and nice. I'm miserable. <laughs> so California has two seasons, hot and okay. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Most no, of the time, it's okay. Right now, it's hot. <laughs> when I come down there in January, like that's your guys' winter. I guess it's ours as well. But uh, your version of winter is a whole lot more enjoyable than uh, my version of winter. So I do love to come down, and uh, uh, you've been so kind to kind of show me around down there a little bit, uh, kind of tag along with seat concepts, delivering some very special seat covers. And even hooking me up with a very special seat cover from my good friend uh, Brandon Beaver about two years ago when uh, uh, they had that military theme at uh, San Diego. You guys had some really cool uh, seat covers uh, with the uh, uh, Rocky Mountain RM ATV KTM WPS team. I don't know how many letters they can keep in that team name, but that's who you guys work with. That's how I guess your most notable uh, team that you guys work with. Yeah, that would be the biggest, uh, on the moto side at least, um, yep. for us, for Supercross. You know, we also sponsored the uh, the Ty Lube Honda Buddy Brooks Racing Team. Right. Um, those guys have been awesome for both actually Arena Cross this year and Supercross. We had them just for Supercross last year, um, and then this year we were able to get both, which unfortunately also the last year of Arena Cross, which definitely sucks. Um, but very cool to be involved with those guys. Um, and then a handful of really cool privateers as well, uh, which is really fun, but uh, Rocky Mountain KTM guys actually where I just was dropping off a, uh, a specialty cover for a project they're working on uh, that you're going to see in Transworld Motocross Magazine here in uh, one of the next few issues. I like uh, it. So it should be uh, pretty cool there as well. So they actually had us dig out 
I can't reveal too much, uh, but what I will say is we had to go to the back of the warehouse where we keep our fabric samples and dig out 92 KTM seafoam green. Um, so it'll be really neat to see what they end up doing with that bike. I've only Ooh. seen the cover, so I'm thinking. Uh, yeah, uh, I think I'm. I, I think I know where, where uh, what era that look is going into. Uh, thinking maybe uh, a Mike Fisher. 2000 or 1992 uh, replica site type of thing. I know uh, that, that, that's close to heart for a guy like Davey Coombs, who I believe rode KTMs in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, God bless anyone who was riding a KTM back then. Uh, unless you were riding the GPs, yeah. those things were absolute piles of shit. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the Mike look Healy was is off. Yeah, Healy as well. Past. Yeah, Mike yeah. Healy, uh, I think uh, Bobby Moore as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe for a little bit, and then for sure. the, yeah, Fisher, and then you know, the other one that was maybe a Trampus little later Parker. though was Cliff Palmer. Cliff Palmer, yeah, Trampus right, rode them in yep. the later '90s, '95, I uh, roughly, but yeah. uh, very cool. Uh, the uh, the sea foam green. Looking forward to uh, to that. Um, and uh, but before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of what makes Seat Concepts such an aspiring brand when it comes to uh, building uh, the the most premium uh, place to sit on your motorcycle. Let's talk a little bit about Scott Dennison. Let's get the background story a little bit. I know we've already done one podcast where we kind of dove into that a little bit, but uh, rather than having people dive like maybe maybe 150 podcasts back in the archives, let's get a little bit of a, a Cole's notes on who the heck Scott Dennison is and why he knows so much about motocross. Well, yeah, grew up in uh, my dad uh, a little bit before I was born. Um, actually, purchased a, a Honda Husqvarna dealership, and so I was born into the bike shop. And uh, later, uh, my dad sold the Honda shop and went on to start Moose Racing, um, who's now today a big uh, uh, gear brand. Yes. And then he's been out of that for a while and has gone on to do other things in the industry. Um, you know, I've been working in the industry really all my life, um, except for a brief two-year stint doing something else. It's been nothing but bike shops. Um, and then uh, moved from Colorado to California in 2006, um, actually because I had a, a dream that I should move to California. Um, but basically chasing a, you know, bigger, better industry job than, you know, really in, in most of the other states where there's not so much motorcycle industry, it's, you know, you've got parts guy or sales guy or service guy, and that's kind of it. And I'd, I'd already done all three of those jobs. And uh, so it was kind of time to go try to climb a little higher in the industry. And then, um, you know, been in California since then and had a couple of really cool jobs. I was with uh, 6D Helmets um, for their first three years. I was actually their first employee. Um, so wow. it was really, really neat to see that brand go from absolutely nothing to, to what they are or what they were, you know, a few years ago when I left. And then um, I left 6D to come work for Seat Concepts. I've been there ever since. It's uh, coming up on three years now. There it is. And yeah, you, you have uh, been like uh, gone on the ground floor of a couple of different companies. And, uh, and, and in that, I, I think you've developed a lot of experience in watching and, and helping these uh, companies grow. You know how to kind of take them through the growing pains and the process of getting to the next level and also where to start. There's, not a, there's a lot of companies that they want to just swing for the fences immediately, try, uh, try kind of blow their brains out trying to run with the big dogs uh, and then not take the steps properly to uh, kind of ascend to greatness. I feel like uh, you have a lot of experience in kind of, uh, kind of guiding that process. And that's why Seat Concepts has not only uh, um, had you on a, a couple of different times, but also allowed you to work from home in SoCal before you make the, the move over to Boise. 
Yeah, yeah. Seed Concepts uh, moved almost a, almost exactly a year ago, actually, up from California to Idaho. And, uh, you know, I wasn't prepared to make that transition at the time. Um, you know, my wife and I were, expect- were expecting a baby and obviously had a house to sell and all that. So they uh, have allowed me to kind of partially work from home and then commute. I've been doing uh, basically two weeks in Idaho, one week in California since about January, wow. uh, which is an exhausting amount of travel. travel. And then, yeah, and then uh, actually as it stands right now, we've uh, got the realtor coming to take pictures of the house next week, and we're going to sell it. And then pretty much as soon as it sells, we're we're headed up. You know, our, our baby's been here now. He's about three months old now. It's uh, child number two for us, the little guy. And so uh, congratulations, the family's doing awesome. And, yeah, thank you. And we're pretty excited about it, man. Boise's cool. You know, SoCal is, from the kid that grew up, like, you know, sitting in Colorado watching it snow and reading about, everything that was happening in the industry and all the movers and shakers. It seemed like this was the center of the world. And it is, you know, kind of, as far as the motorcycle industry is concerned. If you take that component out of it, there's really not a lot cool about this place. Most of the time it's too hot. It's way too expensive. It's traffic, it's pollution, it's crime. And really, you know, unless you you make about 250 grand a year, you're not going to be able to live where you want to. Right. (laughs) You know, so it's like when you when you get to all the real life aspects of it, like this place is only cool to me because there is a little bit of moto riding here. There's like almost nothing great off road. Um, I've got a lot of friends here, but that's because of the industry. And then you know the industry's here, and, and I have an opportunity to take a good job with me to a way better state. I'm I'm doing it. So we're uh, pretty excited to get to Boise, and Boise is becoming the new center of the world, kind of for the industry too, because you know you've got Western, Western Power, Power Sports, Sports based yeah. out of there, uh, Recluse. Uh, clutches. Um, Climb is in you know, Rigby, which is a little bit north, a couple hours north. Um, you got Scott Goggles and Cherries, which are in uh, Sun City, which again is a couple hours away. Um, Promoto Billet, um, obviously Seat Concepts now. And then I've talked to a handful of other people in the industry, um, who won't name names, but are either um, in the process of actively kind of pursuing a move to Idaho or are strongly considering it. And uh, as California continues to drive small businesses away, I think you're going to see a lot more of the moto industry relocate to places like that. Fair enough. Like, uh, what are the maybe the the biggest benefits to going out to the land of blue football fields? Well, you know, it's it's just a lot less expensive. Um, California just just taxes your face off, and you know, just everything is a lot more money. I mean, from you know, fuel is is nearly a dollar a gallon more uh, than in Idaho. Um, and, you know, obviously housing prices are crazy. I mean, our house in, in Lake Elsinore, um, you know, nice little house, but it's older. It was built in 78. It's like 1,200 square feet. And the, the price that we're asking for that will buy us something that's almost a new build or maybe three or four years old. Yeah. And maybe 1,000 square feet more in, in Idaho. It's, it's just insane. And, yeah. So it just uh, overall, I mean, it's quality of living a lot better. And, and Southern, you know, Idaho, Boise, kind of where we're at, or actually the, the key concept shops in Caldwell, which is about a half hour or so west of Boise. Um, you know, the weather's nice. You get a couple of cold months, you know, but a big snow for them is maybe six inches. So it's pretty mild. And then in the summer, you know, if it gets to a hundred degrees, that's, you know, about as hot as it's really going to be versus, you know, Lake Elsinore in California, I've seen 118 at my house several times a summer. And that's just brutal. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. That like that is some heat that uh, is really unbearable. I think that's why a lot of the tracks like Paris uh, do a night riding. It's milestone is night riding as well, and I think that's kind of 
almost essential to go to going out and riding at this time of year. And I, I know you guys don't get much of a reprieve from the uh, the heat, even when the sun goes down. But uh, um, it, uh, it there there is a little bit of uh, of uh, cachet that still stays with uh, Southern California. I think that's why a lot of the teams and whatnot still uh, do base themselves out of there. But uh, I I, uh, I look forward to hearing about your move and this brand new house that uh, uh, probably has a guest room to stay in. If I was to come down there with a uh, a brand new uh, 2019 Husky. 252 stroke uh and and if i do that maybe uh, seat concepts might be able to uh, make my seat not only look better but function better and lighter as well because that's uh honestly like some of the benefits from seat concepts is that uh, not only seat cover not just the not just the foam but the base as well you guys go tip to tail with those things yeah absolutely that's um you know the, the real key to our product and what has kind of been our niche is is comfort um the foam material that we use is actually a formula that we developed. Um, we own the secret ingredient. It's proprietary to us. And it's basically it's a much higher quality foam than what comes on a stock bike. And the way our production process works is pretty cool because the material starts off as a liquid. So each different shape that we do comes out of its own mold. We're not custom shaping these things you know, by hand or anything like that. Um, but what that, that production process allows us to do is we can actually affect the density of the foam um, you know, by just tweaking the mixture as it goes in. Because we have a big machine that basically takes the, the two-part uh, compound to the foam, mixes it at a certain ratio, and blows it into the mold. And we just make an adjustment to that, and the foam can be you know, firmer or softer to a point. Obviously, there's, there's limits, but um, based on you know, rider weight uh, or personal preference. And uh, so that's something that's pretty innovative. I don't really know of anybody in the industry that's able to do it quite like that to where the density is unique to the rider. Um, and so that's been the biggest thing. And then, you know, yeah, we do for certain models, um, we do offer a complete seat uh, based on a pan that's, that's our own design. Um, typically those are copies of the stock pan. Um, in a few instances, we've made some upgrades or improvements if it was necessary. Um, you know, like the KTM 690 adventure bike, um, they're, stock pan on those things is terrible because they're a carbon composite and they're really brittle and they, they shatter basically. And they got so bad. We stopped doing the foam and cover kits on the stock pans because you almost couldn't hit them with a staple gun and have them stay intact. And, uh, our pan for those is a glass reinforced nylon and they're much, much more durable. There you go. So more durable, uh, often lighter than stock and, uh, and a comfort, honestly. And there's a lot of people who like, they don't really think about their seat, too much or if they say if they if, if the, the seat's too soft or too uh too stiff they sort of just live with it it's one of those things where like they're like oh what do you think of the bike and they're like oh, i love the bike seat's a little bit stiff but uh i, I deal with it uh this that and the other thing but it, as far as uh, like you guys you don't have to worry about that anymore you don't have to be uncomfortable on a machine that like i don't know about you but i keep my bikes for a little while like i'm riding a 2016 uh, 252 stroke from KTM right now, going on its third season. Uh, so you only have three years. The seat's not comfortable. That's not realistic. Yeah, and that was you know something that a lot of people, like you said, don't question. I mean, I was one of those people up until right when I started for the company, and I would go for a long trail ride or something, and I would just kind of accept that. Yeah, of course, my butt hurts. I just did a long ride, and then once I got on stuff that was a better quality, I realized it didn't have to be like that, and. One of the things actually that's interesting with the KTMs too is is it's actually kind of counterintuitive because 
a lot of guys will tell you their seat's too firm. And what, and I was one of these guys, what they don't realize is going on is they're actually blowing through the travel on the foam and they're able to feel the pan and they're interpreting that as too firm. So actually putting them on a firmer foam will result in more comfort because it gets them up off that pan and they're into the travel on the foam. And uh, so it doesn't even, doesn't always go the way you think. A lot of guys will think, you know, softer equals more comfortable. Not always true. You know, you definitely need a certain amount of support and that's where, the development and the R&D that we put into them, which is considerable, um, really pays off for us is being able to kind of learn things like that and then make those tweaks to a stock bike. For sure. And then I, I got to ask, like, how long has, has Seat Concepts really been doing the, the, this research development? Because it's not something that happens overnight. You guys must have been at it for quite some time. Yeah, it's uh, your company kind of officially came about in about 2009, 2010. Um, our company owners at the time were big into restoring vintage bikes, and they came across something they couldn't find a seat for and ended up deciding to make it, and sort of in the process kind of found the basis for what our, our foam is made out of and then um, realized they had something there. And then um, right about the time the recession hit, you know, they had they lost some good jobs and it was kind of became their only source of income, so they kind of went big with it. And, um, you know, their first couple of years was about, getting as many models as we could um, because we kind of knew that we were pretty ripe for competition. This was before I was at the company, but um, they, so I say we in in terms of the company sense, but um, they were just focused on make as many molds as possible, offer as many model applications to get as big as we could, as fast as we could. Uh, But their development process, it was the same then as it is now. And basically, you know, buy, borrow, whatever we got to do, a stock bike, um, ride with the stock seat to get an idea for what it did well and what it did do well, um, shape a prototype from that. And, and once we were happy with the shape, that becomes the buck that we make the mold from. And then once the mold made, we begin to work on what the density specs will be. And we have kind of a baseline for everything. Um, and then we deviate from that based on if the rider is heavier or lighter or once it's firmer or softer. Um, but basically the development process is a lot of riding. You know, ride with a stock bike, ride with a prototype, ride with the you know the first article, and almost everything in our catalog. And we offer products for over 350 different bikes. Um, our staff has actual ride time on, and that's what I believe sets us apart from everybody else. Um, we actually have our our staff's 14 people, and we have collectively between us 232 years of riding experience. Wow! So uh, that's a lot. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah, not a lot of companies can can really say that. So when you when you call us. Whoever is that, anybody's allowed to answer the phone is an actual rider who has a lot of time on our product. And you're going to get an answer from somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And, th- and that's honestly the, 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 the biggest thing is, is the knowledge. It's the people you're, you're going to some, these businesses and you're hoping to find people that are not only passionate about the product and about the sport, but also knowledgeable to the point where uh, if you have a, a, like an inquiry or uh, an objection or something that's like kind of holding you back, uh, they, they know exactly, they know how to handle all of that as well as kind of take you through the, uh, the process of finding the right seat for you. Like say if, if I, if I call you guys up, um, uh, I'm experiencing, uh, my, the seat foam on my KTM to be a little bit too soft. Um, like it's, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm 195 pounds, I'm six feet tall, I ride A A class locally, like kind of where am I headed, stuff like that. That, That's something you guys can really help me out with. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because, you know, the other thing, too, is represented on our team, um, you know, we've got short guys, tall guys, 
skinny guys, heavy guys, and then young to old and also novice to expert. Um, and so we've got kind of the full range. You know, there's actually, there's a couple ladies on our staff here, right, too. Um, so we definitely kind of have, a, I think, a real good feel for what the customer is going to be experiencing and can really point them in the right direction of what's going to be a benefit to them. There you go. So what, what, do you, what would you say is some of the most difficult um, bikes to kind of set up for somebody? Or is there one that's more difficult than others uh, as far as uh, getting somebody to become comfortable? Or, uh, or when someone comes in and gives you uh, uh, a rough idea, like, is, is it pretty easy to kind of like steer them in the right direction from there? Well, you know, just overall, what is a bit of an engineering challenge for us um, is kind of the direction that a lot of modern bikes are going, and, and it's mostly KTM and Husky, in that the seats are really minimal. Um, foam thickness, you have to think of like suspension travel. You know, you always want more of it. And when there's not very much, you can't do as much with it. And, you know, KTM and by extension Husky, right now their main focus in, in terms of engineering is on lightweight. And the seat is a place where, on paper at least, an engineer can save weight because it's high up on the bike and you really feel it. So they're coming with these really minimal seats. Like the Husqvarna 701 uh, adventure bike is 30 millimeters thick at the thickest spot. That's just shy of an inch and a half. Yeah. And, and most of the seat is thinner than that. And, and so that doesn't give us much room to work. And, you know, because obviously our foam is a lot better than the stock foam, but because of the minimal thickness, there's limits to how soft it can be. Right. And the only way, the only way to add thickness also adds height. And you have a bike that's already pretty tall. And so we get a lot of requests for a low seat for a bike where, you know, you can't even make one. And so that's a challenge. And then to improve upon the stock seat with, without raising the height of the thing is, is you know, easily accomplished by our foam, but, maybe not to the point where we could if we had more to work with, you know, because it's like, yeah, I'd love to double the thickness on the thing, and then we could make it all kinds of squishy, and it'd, it'd feel really good, you know, but it'd be a lot taller. And on some bikes, we've been able to redesign the seat pan to actually allow for more foam. Um, we did that with the Betas. Um, we did that with the Oforto 7 KTMs. Um, and, but then certain models, there's not enough room to, to be able to change the shape of the pan, you know, because there's either there's electrical components or airbox or frame rails or something in the way. And so we're kind of stuck, you know. And so some of them are, our seats are a fair amount better than stock, but they're maybe not as good as they could be if we could deviate from some of the stock dimensions. For sure, and you guys are always innovating. And uh, when you run into a problem like a, a, a pan that needs to be changed, not uh, not uh, uh, scared to to go ahead and make those changes. And I, I think that's one of the maybe the uh, the coolest things about this is like say you like you're a guy like myself who likes to keep bikes pretty stock. And like when I, when I buy a brand new motorcycle, every single piece of plastic comes off of the thing. And, um, ba- like to like, if I was to sell one of those bikes, which I never have, uh, I would be able to sell it with brand new plastics front to rear and uh, exactly in the OEM spec the way it was. But what doesn't come off the bike is the seat. So, uh, if say, if I went with a company like seat concepts, I'd be able to also unbolt that seat and go with a brand, a brand new base, a brand new foam, and a brand new cover of my choosing to basically just change the look and the feel of my motorcycle from that standpoint, as well as keeping uh, the stock seat uh, fully intact, no rips if, if I do, in, uh, in fact, uh, look to put it on the open market in a couple of years' time. Uh, and honestly, that, that's one of the things that people look at when it comes to uh, sell, buying a used bike, is, uh, is whether or not the seat's in good shape. Oh, absolutely. We do, you know, for certain models, we do complete seats, and we do more of those typically for those models, then the foam and cover kit. 
and uh, you know the the tooling for a pan is pretty expensive, so we're really only able to do that on the models that are going to be a real high volume seller um, because it just doesn't justify the tooling cost to do it on something that's that's you know rather rare model. Right. Um, but it definitely makes it easier for people to be able to buy an entire complete seat for sure. Absolutely, and I I, I know you've uh, had a lot of experience with the seats themselves, and you you are a guy who rides. And uh, and also a guy who, when I first started talking to you, that's what we, what we were originally talking about was restoring old bikes, which I think that you've got a, a pretty badass uh, CR250. I hope that's still in your possession at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I've been, uh, I've finished that thing, I, you know, obviously when we talked before and been riding it ever since. And the thing's, thing's awesome. I love that bike. And I'm actually uh, getting really close to starting my next build for myself personally, which will be a you know, CRE 250, um, which basically starts out as a, a steel frame, so like 93 to 96 right. CR 250, uh, but is all set up for off-road oh. and will kind of be the off-road equivalent of what I built for my motorbike. And uh, CREs came from Italy way back when. Um, there's HM Italy, which is a Honda importer there, um, sold a kit for CR 250s in the 90s that basically turned them into an off-road weapon. And they're, you know, headlight tail light, big tank, wide ratio tranny, lighting coil, uh, kickstand, the whole mess. And I've, over the last probably two years of hunting around on eBay, I've managed to find almost an entire original CRE kit. Wow. And so there I'm going to go. build uh, kind of a, an off-road weapon. It'll be my, my Idaho trail bike that'll be, you know, kind of save my other CR250 for just the track. Because it's, it's set up wonderful for track. It's mm-hmm. way too harsh for trail stuff. And yeah. I mean, just... Plus, the you don't want to put still. that beautiful bike through the through the trails of, uh, of, of Boise, Idaho. Like that's, that's not, that's the, that's a yeah. thing worse than death when it comes to uh, a beautiful bike like that. Yeah. That part is, you know, I mean, doesn't scare me that bad. I'm, I'm happy to go thrash it if it needs to be. <laughs> that's enough, what the trail calls enough. for. But, but you know, it does, it thrashes me more than I thrash it just because the way it's set up, it's great, you know, again, great for moto, but it's too harsh for trail stuff. So the, the CRE is going to be the other way around. It's going to be too soft and too mellow for the track, but perfect for single track. Fair enough, Scott Dennison, coming to a Idaho trail near you. If you uh, if you live out that way, maybe you can uh, get in touch with Scott and uh, give him the hot tips on some uh, some awesome trail riding out there, we, of which we know there is much. Uh, and we just talked about a uh, a two fifty two stroke that you built. Awesome bike, thing is absolutely beautiful. Staying in that beautiful sound that we know so well. I know that at uh, when you're not. Uh, on the clock at uh, Seat Concepts, getting all that work done. Uh, you're probably flipping through all the motos uh, that are going on in Hurricane Mills, Tennessee right now. Uh, I'm sure there's a few Seat Concepts seats, foams, and covers also being used down there. But uh, uh, I wanted to talk to you about a moto that just went down uh, about 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes ago. The 125BC, uh, all 125s. These abs- these bumblebees were ripping around the track, and uh, none other than Ty Masterpool uh, coming all the way back from about twelfth place to uh, not only take the win, but to actually falling down once in the process of getting to the lead. Awesome moto from him. Not to spoil it for you, my friend, but you need to watch that one twenty five moto. Yeah, I I can't wait to get home and look that one up, man. It's it, Loretta's is awesome, and it blows my mind how hard those kids charge. And, oh yeah. You know, it's like, I know they're not, it's weird because I know they're not pro speed yet, some of them, you know, but they're going for it just as hard as anything. And that was, you know, I went to Loretta's for the first time when I was with 6D Helmets um, to just work. I didn't ride. I was there selling helmets and 
you know, taking care of our riders and talking to customers and all that. And it yep. just it blew my mind how intense those kids are. And even down to the, the 50 and 60 kids, man, those at the top level classes are, every one of them is going for it so hard. And, and it's super fun to watch, but it's, it's kind of crazy, the intensity, you know, and it, it's really neat to see the progression there and kind of what the future holds. And the 125 class especially, man, because there's so much parity there and the kids are all so fast. And I think the bikes are, pretty similar mostly at the top level i think there's just sort of limits to how fast it's not it's not top fuel yet like like 250 fs are where if you've got tons of money you're gonna have the fastest one you know and so it's, it's always makes for some great racing for sure like I, I would honestly argue that some of those one two fives and some of the super minis at loretta's are the most tricked out bikes there like the, in the ones that aren't like are in the mod classes because they're squeezing every single little bit of power and and weight and shaving weight on those bikes unbelievable i know like every single uh like recent pro that you talk to like like i can tell you how every single interview with uh the mitchell falk or derek uh derek drakes will go uh after unadilla and mentioning how much faster their pro bike is uh, in in reference to their uh their amateur bike but when it comes to the super minis and those 125s like it's everything that anyone can do to make those things rip and those things are about as exotic as it gets when it comes to uh uh building up those beautiful bikes and uh and you yourselves over at seat concepts were uh, integral in uh putting together one of greg schnell's one two fives that in and of itself is a bit of a rocket ship yeah we uh we kind of fell into that one um that's a pretty neat story so uh you know we got it's a 2001 yz125 and my boss bought it sight unseen from a friend of his in Colorado. Um, and he paid 250 bucks for it. And, you know, one day he just kind of pops his head in my office. He's like, yeah, he's like, I'm getting my, my 125 delivered today. I'm like, and he told me what it was. And I'm like, what'd you pay? He says, 250 bucks. I'm like, well, it doesn't matter what kind of shape it's in. That's a great deal. Yeah. You know, I would, I would take that deal sight unseen all day long. And, uh, I'll lead you through some, some dirt bike forensic anthropology here. Yes. <laughs> you know, so the thing shows up and, you know, they pulled off the truck. It had been delivered to California from Colorado. This was, this was about a year and a half ago. And it's in absolutely horrible condition. And, you know, we're looking it over. And, you know, the counter shaft had been sheared off uh, right behind the sprocket there. I don't know how the previous owner managed that. Um, and I could see it was just, just been completely neglected. But the first thing I noticed is all the Motor World team graphics, you know, from the Motor World Yamaha team. And it's the complete kit, you know, the front fender, rear fender, swing arm, airbox, shrouds, everything. Again, horrible shape, but it's all there. And I'm like, well, that's cool. So, you know, okay, looks like a Motor World bike. Um, and then we see the AMA tech sticker on the frame, and it's like, okay, that's interesting, you know. But then the guy that had had it before had put on a skid plate, a spark arrestor, and a gigantic tool bag on the rear fender. <laughs> and so I know, you know, I know the Motor World team, uh, Paul Lindsay, who was their, their team manager, right. um, still lives in Colorado Springs. And I know that they sell off a lot of their race bikes complete because actually in 2002, I bought uh, Damon Huffman's RM250 Supercross bike from him. Nice. Um, for myself personally. And that was one of the best bikes I've ever had. And I, I still get sad when I think about having to sell that. Um, <laughs> so I know the team sold off complete team bikes, you know. So I started to look at this this 125 and I'm like, it's got all the stuff, you know. And it's got the 909, uh, FMF909, you know, perch, grips lever even though like the levers were bent around in a circle and the grips were worn through you know the whole thing is just haggard so basically what i think happened here is the team sold it to trail guy trail guy just ran it into the ground and he yeah just, never just even worked on it never looked at it you, you know, know that's so, a race bike and it's a one two five and i'll just beat on it until it says no more 
Yeah, basically. And so, you know, we pop the clutch cover off. There's a full Henson basket, you know, the inner, the outer, the pressure plate, everything. Um, you know, it's sort of, man, this is the real deal. And, uh, you know, he had the trail guy, I guess, had blown it up at some point. Um, so what we did was, you know, the, he put a Athena cylinder on it. So we pulled that all apart and we could see where, you know, the cylinder was completely fresh, but the cases had been ported a little bit. So mm -hmm. like this was the real team race bike. Um, so at that point we made the decision that we want to put it back to the same condition it was in when it was an actual motor world bike. Um, right. so stripped it all down, um, frame and subframe went off to get powder coated. Um, you know, we cut the wheels all apart, sent the hubs to W uh, wheels they did you know new spokes new rims new nipples uh, new bearings sandblast of the hubs um we <laughs> sent the cylinder and the cases <laughs> sent the cylinder and the cases back to terry varner who was who, the guy that did the team motors back in the day we said hey port this cylinder the same way you would have done it for the team um fmf helped us out with a pipe and silencer um zlt was able to perfectly reproduce the motor world graphics uh, which were one industries back in the day but obviously yes. they're no longer available um, for many reasons. Um, but ZL yeah, absolutely. But ZLT did an amazing job um, of, uh, of reproducing the graphics for us. And then uh, I put the entire thing back together. Um, and so basically, you know, we replaced almost every single bolt on it, um, every single bearing, had the suspension serviced. Um, and then the seat, which obviously being seat concepts, you know, was kind of the crown jewel on there because we were able to get zlt to reproduce the vinyl panels yes. from the one industry that seat. was and then from that that yeah, was that key. turned out really well we sewed it together into a replica of the same seat and for now that's the full works part um it's not something we can do on a production scale um because for one reason there's actually licensing agreements that would have to be into place for us to reproduce some of the logos that were on there namely yamaha Yes. Uh, the Motor World Velcro. Um, but also, that's really hard to do without the original seat. Um, I've already had people hit me up for the McGrath RM250, um, the seat cover for that, which was a, the, the Suzuki of Troy, you know, but it's the whole vinyl side panel. I would love to be able to do those. Um, I need somebody to send me a real one first so we can copy it. <laughs> so that's, okay. you know, that's going to be, I would love to do that someday, but at this point, until I get my hands on an original, it's, it's kind of not possible to get the thing to line up and really look right uh, right and also so you're saying is you could possibly do a uh <laughs> if i was doing a pro circuit build which i might be doing you guys might be able to uh do something similar for me off the record uh we can talk about it all right yeah. well, i mean we'll it's, talk it's not it's yeah. not impossible it's, it's very difficult but it's not impossible. okay <laughs> but again the licensing agreements are the big one i don't want to go knocking off somebody's logo and get in all kinds of trouble and Yes. And have to deal with that. So that would that would not be good. Okay. But uh, yeah, I'd love to get to the point where that's something we could do more of, but it's tough right now. Yep. Anyway. So this bike, it's coming together and the crown jewel is this beautiful seat cover. Keep going. Yeah, so it's it's together now. And uh actually one of our employees, um raced it actually a kid named Riley Dickinson that works in our, our foam department. Uh, raced it at Washougal uh, last weekend and just missed qualifying for the 125 All-Star race. He Ooh. had a bit of an issue with somebody else in the first corner, <clears throat> went from dead last to 
one spot out of where he needed to be um, for to get into the Saturday thing. So um, he's coming back for redemption uh, at the actual dream race here in a few weeks. So it'll be cool. But uh, the thing runs amazing because it's in addition to looking exactly like it did as a team bike, it functions exactly like it did. You know, we had the same guy do the motor um, suspension is probably not exactly the same, but it's good enough. And, you know, I built it to be a rider. And the thing is, in absolutely the kind of condition it would need to be to basically go back in time 18 years and make a supercross main event. So uh, with the right guy on it, it's, it's fully capable of that kind of speed. And oh, the thing man. really runs good. It look it looks like a rocket ship. It sounds good. Uh, it's a great looking motorcycle and uh, looking forward to hearing uh, more about that thing or is more about uh, Riley going up there and, and getting into the motos. I think, that it is so indicative in the spending habits and the attitudes of the uh, of the motocross community when uh, they barely have enough guys to turn people away in the 250 and the 450 classes. Like there's there's maybe like how many guys are getting turned away from the motos in uh, in the outdoors right now? Like five, six, yeah, not very many. Yeah, eight, eight, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's maybe. Not, and, like, and a, a few of those guys end up getting into the motos anyway because they've been letting guys uh, kind of come in as a, as an alternate or a yeah, like a like kind of like a um, if someone doesn't make the first moto or the second moto, they they'll still fill the gate with guys that weren't in the qualifying positions. But they're turning all kinds of people away for these one twenty five races. Uh, yeah. having to have qualifiers, yeah. people are building these bikes, making them sound and look awesome. And, uh, I will go on record as saying that I was racing two strokes back in 2000 and co- 2013 when it wasn't cool to do so. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, we talked about this two years ago when I was on for the yeah. TRT 50 build, but, and it's, and it's, in my opinion, has been no progress since then, but the industry needs to get it together. And I don't mean the industry is in the aftermarket. I mean the people who control the racing at the top levels. Because yes. we have cut off the the affordable entry to our sport in oh. terms of motocross. You know, a 250F is a, a $10,000 toy. And, you know, honestly, because in, in this 125 we just built is a perfect example. My CR250 is a perfect example. You can have the nicest two-stroke ever. I mean, there's a couple of bikes that, you know, in their day would have been good enough for the absolute best riders and and i'm you know i'm in my cr250 just shy of four grand and this 125 is probably about a three thousand dollar project you know for for really pennies compared to a tvdf you can have the nicest two-stroke ever you can have three of the nicest two strokes ever to have one stock 250f well the new the new ken rocks and replica crf 450 eleven thousand four hundred bucks in the u.s i think is what it retails for and like i would love to own one that's realistically only going to happen if I hit Powerball at this point. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just just well north of what I'm able to spend. Meanwhile, you know, I can go build a, a 252 stroke that's as badass as anything ever was. Yeah, and, and still has more you power know, than you're willing to hold on long into a corner anyway. Well, yeah, that's, you know, for amateur nobody me, you know, that thing is all the bike I'll ever need. And, like, yeah, I'm probably faster on a 450, you know, because I'm not in perfect shape and I'm lazy a little bit. Um that and you're never in the wrong power, gear but... on a on a on a 450. Like that's the biggest thing. For me. Yeah, uh, you make a mistake on a 252 stroke. There's a half second. There's this that and the other thing. Lap times might be different on 250 uh, 450F. But for me, I'm still coasting into corners just as bad on a 450 as I am on a 125 or 250F 252 stroke. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But what's what scares me about it is, you know, if you've got a kid who's sitting at home, say you know he's from a family that doesn't ride, he yeah. sees motocross and he thinks it's cool. 
you know, his dad starts to look into what it's going to take, and, and he's like, we can't afford this. I mean, I need 250 you know, eight, $9,000, and then I've got to do what to it to make it competitive? And then when it breaks, it's how much? Yeah. You know, versus the 125. You know, that same dad can go go in Craigslist. He can find a used 125 for, for less than two grand. It's rideable. It's not perfect, but it's rideable. He can do some little things to it for not a lot of money. He doesn't need crazy mechanical talent. No. You know, and then the kids at their races. And, you know, at the top level of our sport, we need to be showcasing, there should be a 125 class. Like more, I mean, the, the all-star class, okay, it kind of counts, but it gets zero TV time. Um, some of the magazines kind of pay attention to it. Some of the online websites kind of pay attention to it, but you got to dig to find any oh, video yeah. footage of the thing Often or even results. Like you can find helmet cam stuff shot by, uh, uh, what, Kyle, uh, what's his name there? Kyle at, from Racer X. But otherwise, like you yeah. have to dig for the results on that race, and I'm like, why is this? Why is this so hard? <laughs> well, no, and it's it, it, you know, honestly, you've got like the Twitter feed from the races from a couple of big magazines. I won't name names. Um, is is usually your best source for live result if it's not live on TV right that second, and they don't even tweet about the 125 race. No, and it's some of the best racing out there. It's like, guys, we got to start paying attention to this and. Because that's the way things are going. I mean, if you look, you just have to play around on Instagram for five minutes. You see all the guys that are building these amazing juice drugs. You know, Matt Weller, for one, that guy builds things that are just these museum bikes, you yeah. know. And then and sells for them pens. immediately. And I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, I don't know how he can part with those things. He's selling his Rainer 125. That's like the sexiest thing I've ever seen. I, won't, I wish I could buy it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, I know. If I wasn't about to try to buy a house, I would be calling him up, you know. But, yeah, it's, it, and he's doing that for... You know, I mean, sure he's spending a fair amount for what it is, but it's like he's nowhere close to the new 450, you know. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's it's crazy. And we, we as a sport need to figure out how to bring an affordable level back into it in some way. We can still have our, our crazy 250s and 450s and people want to spend all the money, but, you know, it's we need to have a, a way to get people into our sport for a reasonable price because that's the only way we're going to grow our rider base. And what's going to happen is, the current crop of guys is going to kind of age out and in a handful, maybe another couple of decades, there's going to be a, a noticeable drop off as the vets who are, are really the biggest group right now that's spending money kind of drop off, you know, cause you're kind of seeing it. And this is ties back to what the contest is seeing in terms of how much dual sport stuff that we do, because our biggest customer base are probably the 30 something dual sport guys. And I think these are the kids who maybe would have gotten into motocross, you know, in the mid 2000s when GVDS started coming around, at the time it wasn't really in reach for them, and so yeah. they didn't. And now that they're in their 30s, they have decent jobs. They're coming back to riding, and they're kind of going towards dual sport rather than racing. And that's that's what's driving that resurgence there. And that's maybe where you see them getting into it. But I think, you know, if we can bring an affordable level back into it, it, it brings in that young crowd again. And you see the entrance, the entries at the races turn back up, and. You know, my proof for all this is to look at off-road. You know, look at GNCC is right. hugely popular. Mm -hmm. Thousands of entries. And most of them are two-stroke amateur guys. Yeah. Um, the J-Day series on the East Coast, you know, I've not been to one of those personally. We hear nothing but good things about it. Um, 125 Pro Class is huge. It's revitalized the careers of some guys that were a little washed up before that, and now they're back, and they call it the Payday Series because they can buy these 125s, go race, and then win all kinds of money, and, and it's, they're pulling huge entries, like six or 700 people around, I'm told. And so there it is. I mean, you, you bring the affordable level back to it, and the people start coming back. And, and until motocross figures that out, we're in real trouble. 
Absolutely. Like when I started racing, uh, your your bike came with uh, like like uh, I don't want to gang up on uh, like uh, Husqvarna or, or KTM in this in this sense. But like when you have a brand new bike, it came with really shitty grips, steel bars. Uh, a lot of times the foot pegs weren't awesome. Uh, that didn't come with an O-ring chain. Came with a steel sprocket. Most bikes still still come with a steel sprocket, but for the most part, like you were going to buy a bike uh, for about f- maybe five grand. I think my, my 125 and 04 was $5,200. And then, um, and then you, know, you, it was up to you to like, kind of like put some decent bars on it, put some decent grips on it, do like uh, put a, a decent exhaust system on it, uh, which I, I guess you still have to do, even though most headers on four, uh, two, four, four, four strokes are still pretty good or right now still pretty good. But uh, back then, like it, it wasn't that big of an ask. Like, and, and the way minimum wage was, like you didn't have to work nearly as many hours at a, at a like an entry level job to actually afford one of these bikes. Now, like if you don't have a, a, a decent paying job uh, making you uh, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, close to, uh, you can't genuinely consider getting a, a motocross bike and just buying it outright. And, and then everyone's like, oh, you can you can finance things. I'm like, for to me. You don't finance your toys. You don't finance a motocross no. bike and uh, making payments on. It. I know guys that are still making payments on dirt bikes they don't even own anymore because they've been paying paying for it. Eventually, the thing's a piece of shit and they fucking sell it and they just like they can't. They they like they just uh, like they they gotta get rid of it. But every month they they pay another two hundred and eighty bucks uh, for their for their dirt bike they don't own anymore. And that to me is not uh, owning a dirt bike. You want to go out there and get yourself something that you actually own and uh, like it's. It, uh, you don't you don't finance your toys, and uh, I think it would be a huge benefit if we if manufacturers took a strong look at the two strokes, and uh, and honestly I, I I called it the like during my uh, my most recent post on Instagram the the best moto in 2018 period I don't care what what Supercross one Outdoor National doesn't matter the best moto of 2018 just went down in the 125 BC class at Loretta's and uh, and each one of those bikes is probably you could probably build that bike from the ground up for under 10 grand and those things are horny. oh for sure for sure and you know it's it's for me it's the the family aspect because you know i was fresh out of high school in 2000 2001 <coughs> excuse me um working at a dealership selling bikes i was at, at Fay Myers motorcycle world in colorado you know working in the sales department and i saw so many sales i made them personally and, and the other sales guys i worked with to families where it was a two or three unit deal where dad gets a bike instead of the kids. And, and now you kind of don't see that as much. It's, it's way bigger deal for a family to decide to get into the sport, you know, because back then it was, you know, CR 250, 58.99 retail, you know, 125 was like 49.99 retail. And, and a lot of the time we had a pretty decent selection of used stuff too, <clears throat> you know, and try to go do that same deal at your dealership. Now, you know, it's like CRF 450, 11, 499, CRF 250, 10, you know, it's just, you're, you're you're deeper than what the family truck is before, you know, you even get everybody geared up. And it was just, it's, it's really tough on our sport to make the entry level that high of a bar. Oh, for sure. Like all those, like those commercials from the mid nineties where it was like Honda, like, uh, I want to ride. I want, that was literally mother, dad, yep. brother, sister, and two other kids all with dirt bikes riding on the trails. Every single one of them on brand new bikes. You talk. You you look at that same scenario now. Like if it had to be a CR uh, CRF one fifty, uh, a four fifty for for dad, and a two fifty F for mom, and uh, uh, another one fifty for for your for your daughter. You're talking 
you're talking twenty thousand, or probably almost thirty thousand dollars of the dirt bikes right there. Yeah, well, and that's that's where you know at least Yamaha and KTM get it right with you know fifty, sixties, eighty fives, one twenty fives, two fifties. Yeah, but you know the retail price is is pushing it on those too. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're keeping it as minimal as they can. You know, with with not a lot of updates, which to me. I don't think those bikes really need huge upgrades every year. No, they're, they're pretty, pretty darn good where they're at. Anyway. You know, but with, with, you know, Honda and Kawasaki and Suzuki, not want to play that game anymore. Uh, it's, it's tough, you know, and, and, you know, with the media and, and the pro racers kind of pushing that to be competitive, you have to have the latest and greatest 250F, you know, I think it's, I don't know. It, it just makes it hard for our sport to grow, you know, and it's kind of scary to see. Oh, totally agree. And uh, it, it definitely kind of holds people back. That barrier to entry, uh, which used to be very minimal, is now looks like a mountain when it comes to if you want to get current and buy a brand new bike. And a lot of those people are like, oh, you like just don't, then don't buy a brand new bike right, right off the hop. I'm like, well, like the reality is, is that 15 years ago, you could get in at the ground level with a brand new motorcycle. And now that doesn't seem to be the case unless you've got deep pockets. Um, and I, for one, probably like I, I'm not in the market for a five year, six year, 10 year old four stroke by any means. Like I'm not looking at a 2005 RM 450 RMZ 450 and thinking, yeah, this is going to be a sick bike. Like it's they're 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 not nearly like uh, you're not bike for your dollar and for the for the most part people still want two three thousand dollars for those things so you're not getting a, a great deal yeah. on them either so like I I'd have no choice but to go with uh with a with a tire two stroke and then uh, your your chain sprockets uh tires and grips uh away from uh, having a pretty potent machine as long as you know what you're doing behind the controls. oh yeah well you and can everyone pay me likes to, take to look a, at your bike list. too yeah there's that and, and it's fun. Too. I mean, yeah. it's really cool to hunt parts on Craigslist and eBay and to try to find stuff. But honestly, you, you couldn't pay me to take a, a Craigslist 250F because to me, that's that's a three thousand dollar time bomb. Oh, you know, if it sure. runs right now, probably won't for much longer. And when it goes, it's yeah. going to be bad. No, you got a crankshaft <laughs> held together with bubble gum, and uh, the guys are like, "Oh yeah, it yeah, runs great, no problems." And then uh, all of a sudden, you realize that uh, the like the valves aren't seated properly, this, that, and the other thing, and you have. Uh, like two weeks later, you have a, a 245 pound, um, like lawn ornament that, uh, you can't yeah. sell yourself. And, and then, yeah, if a four stroke breaks, like there's so many moving parts in a four stroke. And I know you can replace all these things. And if you do it, do it the right way, you can bring it back to its original luster, but you're not even talking about the same ballpark as far as, uh, uh repair costs. Like, um, you, you blow up a two stroke at worst, you're putting a new cylinder on it at worst. Yeah. Yeah, on a really, really bad day. Yeah. You know, or me. yeah, maybe split the cases. Yeah, if you get some drunk at the bottom end. But a four stroke, meanwhile, it's like you got to be a pretty savvy mechanic to be able to fix that too. Like a two stroke top end, it's a one beer project. Huh. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, you know, like you, you buy a six pack and you got shit left over uh, for the next time you blow exactly. it up again. Like it's, uh, yeah. And, 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 and as far as the, the money, I can call up, uh, uh, my, Matt Weller over at Vertex Pistons and get that thing ordered up. It's at my door uh, for under 150 bucks shipped, and uh, and I put the bike back together. And like you said, a, a one beer project. So um, yeah, like I just like the you're 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 so much more accomplished on a bike uh, as a as a mechanic on these things. I feel like uh, like just like and that is like to me is just peace of mind. Like I know that like you head out onto the track. And say like the bike's running a little funny or this that and the other thing, and you're like in, in my head, if I'm on a one like a two stroke, I'm like, 
okay, it's not running awesome. If it's like, first of all, I know how to fix that. And if things do go wrong, I, I would still know how to fix that. Whereas in a four stroke, if I hear a funny noise, hit the kill switch, send it to a shop and pray that it's not $4,000. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, even basic stuff, you know, stops running fuel pump, 300 bucks. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, it's tough. I mean, all the new technology is really awesome, but it's just raised the bar, you know, cause for me, you know, obviously industry job, life's okay, but two kids, wife, house, bills, real life, like the moto budget's not what it used to be, <laughs> you know? And, uh, that makes it really tough. You know? Like I got to imagine so. that like, like, uh, bolt on brands like, uh, like Renthal or, or stuff like that, that where like they used to sell a lot of bars to people, uh, from the, like, like from people replacing their OEM bars, the steel bars would bend the first time you looked at them. Uh, so those would get replaced. And now of course they sell a lot of bars straight to the manufacturer when they're, they're, they're the bar, the bikes are coming with them. But, uh, I don't know too many people that unless the bars get bent, they're not really changing that stuff out. So, um, like my my KTM came with neck and handle bars, which I don't exactly love the the bend on them, but I'm not about to go change bars that don't uh, require being changed whatsoever. So uh, like that's one less sale that a, a brand like Pro Taper or Neckin or Tag are actually going to get because uh, yeah, there's people like oh like it came with bars on it. I don't need to change them. Yeah, no, I mean that's and maybe that's you could argue maybe one of the positive changes we've seen is that stuff's coming with better components on it, but that all goes back into that retail price and it's just, yeah. it, it makes it tough for sure. Absolutely. So, but we've, you know, see concepts have actually been, you know, setting sales records uh, every month lately because we're seeing a lot of guys, you know, really upgrading their rides. And that's maybe the one good thing that we are seeing in, in the sport right now is that it's, it is real strong in terms of, I think people are fixing up their older bikes more than they're buying new stuff. For and, sure. Uh, and I think yeah, that's, so that's like really a, cool to see. a huge like kind of boost for companies like Seat Concepts, uh, companies like W Wheels. Like, how many times have you looked at a bike on Craigslist? You're like, all right, cool. The bike looks a little hammered. It definitely needs a new seat, and those wheels look like they're probably hooped. So you call up yeah. Scott Dennison over at Seat Concepts. You get a brand new uh, seat cover and maybe foam if the bike's not too out of date. And then you call up uh, my, my good friend. Um, Mr. Anderson, John Anderson over at W Wheels. Hey, John, I don't want, I can't afford brand new wheels for this thing, but I got some hubs. I want to make them look sweet with a uh, uh, coat, uh, Cerakote coating on there, spokes, nipples, huh, nipples, and, and hoops for the thing. Maybe call up uh, Rob Fox over at Dunlop Tires and get yourself all suited up and ready to rip uh, as far as uh, getting a brand new two-stroke. And like, honestly, for both, for the seat, and the uh, and the wheels all put together and back to your door. You're probably still talking about something that's less than uh, thousand fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah, and you know they're going to be solid and trustworthy and yeah, and, and work good. Out. So and mix yep, in so, works and out well with stuff like that. You can like people always talking to me like, oh, like yeah, how can you afford to put BP racing fuel in your bike? I'm like, well, you take the four thousand dollars that you spent on your four like four four thousand dollars more on your four stroke that you spent than I did. And if you like, how much, how much race fuel could you buy with $4,000? Could you probably, yeah, exactly. could, you, could you just, could you just throw that straight in your bike every single weekend? Cause I can like, like, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, I choose to, uh, to go with VP cause it, uh, runs cleaner, smells awesome. And, uh, I think the bike just runs better, honestly. And you can, you can, uh, quote, oh, yeah. uh, Kyle Moosey, uh, Kyle Moose, 
uh, on that uh, for sure because that guy knows about his fueling. I have to call him up and do maybe one of these. That would be awesome. But uh, Scott, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, where can people find out more information on Seat Concepts? Uh, as you uh, are probably, you, we talk, I talked to you through your lunch hour and then probably uh, a little bit longer after that. At some point, you probably need to eat, get something to eat. And I'm sure you have a few more errands to run <laughs> no problem. Uh, throughout the rest of this yeah, afternoon. Yeah, a little more, uh, little more run around to do, but. Got, uh, got always got plenty of stuff, and we've been real, real busy lately, which is, is cool. But um, yeah, website uh, seatconcepts.com. Okay. Um, all the usual places on social media at Seat Concepts. Um, our sister company, Quad Tech, uh, for your four wheel guys out there. Um, we we do the same kind of thing, many. foams and covers uh, for quads. Yep. And then uh, we've got a new kind of our third brand under the same roof, which is DSA Concepts Dual Sport Adventure, and uh, you're going to okay. see. Uh, in the near future, here's some very cool products popping up under the DSA brand, which is going to be um, same kind of you know dual sport oriented stuff, but other than seats. Um, so we've got uh, got some neat things in the works there too. So I'm going to come back on after we get some of that stuff rolling. We can talk about that too. So. Yes, sir. Uh, you will be a repeat offender, and uh, we won't go as many shows uh, before talking to you again. Scott Dennison here on the Big MX Radio Podcast Show, brought to you by FMF. Same company that supported Seat uh, Concepts in their awesome Moto World Yamaha 125 build, and of course Fast House, which is the best looking gear brand in the world, best performing jerseys. They feel like silk. They look awesome, uh, and uh, if you can buy probably two play, two pairs of the pants. Five, five jerseys, and now you got ten sets of gear because you can mix and match. It's awesome. Do that with Fast House. And uh, check out seatconcepts.com. Uh, Tons of products on there. There's an about page. You can kind of get some news about uh, some tech info as well as their uh, testimonials, frequently asked questions, where you can find them, and, of, of course, all the brands that they work with, including Can-Am, Ducati, Gas Gas, uh, and Aprilia, Alta, you name it. All, all those brands are available over at Seat Concept. Do it now. Scott, it's been a pleasure. Don't hang up just yet for podcast sake. We'll cut it off right around there. Thank you.